light to give us some kind of bigger picture stuff. I don't have all the light. I'm not saying I do, but um, we skip a lot of stuff uh, that I think is super, super important. So I'd like to highlight some of those in our time together. And um, yeah, basically Revelation chapter 12 reveals who the remnant is. Revelation 14 communicates the message of the remnant. Okay, so Revelation chapter 12 helps us to identify who the remnant is. Revelation 14 helps us to understand their message, okay, the call that they're given. And we believe that the Advent movement uh, fits that, that aspect of this. So uh, let's pray, and we'll start with the first angel's message and the everlasting gospel. So let's pray. God, I thank you for this privilege to study together, to grow together. We pray for your hand of blessing to be upon us you would speak to us and inspire us and bless us. And I pray that we would see Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're told in First Selected Messages 372, because uh, I want to give kind of the backdrop for the three angels' messages and some of the issues, and we'll jump into the everlasting gospel. So in Ellen White's day, when Jones and Wagner were preaching what they were preaching, and she was starting to preach what she was preaching, some of the people would come up to Ellen White and say, like, you know, what, what's the big deal with all this, like, gospel stuff? Like, you know, like, we need to be preaching. This isn't the third angel's message. And what they're really saying is, we need to be preaching present truth. Okay, And this happens even in our own movement, especially amongst present truthers, right? Everybody already knows the gospel. What we need to do is give them the meat. You ever heard anybody say anything or apply something like this, that everybody knows the gospel, need to give them the meat? Yeah, well, they're dead wrong. Um, so when people say that, what the implication is, is that the gospel is not like the heart of nourishment. But Ellen White says that the message of Christ, our righteousness, was meat in due season, okay? And so this is what, so this is, this is basically what people were saying in her day, that all the stuff that Jones and Wagner are talking about and the righteousness of Christ, that's not present truth. We can't get distracted from what's most important is what they were saying. So she says, some of our brethren have expressed fears that we shall dwell too much upon the subject of justification by faith. But I hope and pray, she says, that none will be needlessly alarmed. For there is no danger in presenting this doctrine as it is set forth in the scriptures. If there had not been a remissness in the past to properly instruct the people of God, there would not now be a necessity of calling special attention to it. So she's literally saying, if we had not been so derelict in our duties, if we had not been so um, hesitant or ignorant of the importance of the gospel and everything that we believe, we wouldn't have to make an even greater emphasis because it would have been a steady emphasis from the beginning. Do you see that? So she's never saying that we should have been preaching the gospel less, right, or whatever. What she's saying is we're bringing it even more prominently before the people because we have not been prominently bringing it before the people to date. Okay, she continues. The exceeding great and precious promises given us in the Holy Scriptures have been lost sight of to a great extent, just as the enemy of all righteousness designed that they should be. He has cast his own dark shadow between us and our God that we may not see the true character of God. Is he succeeding in that still today? We have people within our own midst who still do not truly understand the heart and character of God. And this because Satan wants that to be the case. The Lord has proclaimed himself to be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. She's quoting Exodus chapter 33 when Moses says, show me your glory. And he says, the Lord, the Lord gracious, long-suffering and abundant in truth. Right? That, this idea that God was revealing his true character to Moses. Right? And then we get into the quote that maybe you've heard before. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is a third angel's message. In short, today, some people may say, is this even present truth, right? And she says, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Absolutely, she says. And I believe that if someone had asked her, is the message of justification by faith the first angel's message, she would say in verity. Is it the second angel's message, she would say in verity. I believe the gospel message is found in all three of these. The first, second, and third angel's message is not just the third angel's message. So from the pen of inspiration, it's very clear that we should see that the third angel's message is absolutely centered in that message of justification by faith of the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and it should be throughout it. And so we have in the three angel's messages, the two bookends. You know what a bookend is, right? Do you even own books? <laughs> Do you know what a book is? Have you seen those in, mu have you seen those in museums before? Um, so... <laughs> The old guy throwing shade. So, 
you've got a dead marker. That's what we've got. You know, when I was in high school, it's because the cap's broken, it's leaking. When I was in high school, Mr. Carroll, our math teacher, would pick up a cup or a marker out of the cup and he would realize, oh, this marker doesn't work. And he'd put the lid on it and put it back in the cup. So you know what happened tomorrow? The same thing. He'd pick that same marker up out of the cup. It's dry. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, so the book ends, right? Some kind of this weighted thing that goes on the two ends, right? You ever seen those? Maybe you got like gargoyles or apples or angels or whatever, you know, those little thingies. And in between these are the books, right? So we've got... The first angel's message, the second angel's message, and the third angel's message. But there are two bookends on either side of the three angel's messages that are talking about the very same thing. What are they? In the f- before the first angel's message, it's the everlasting gospel. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made all that, right? So the everlasting gospel is the first bookend, and then the second bookend at the end is the faith of Jesus. Okay? And the point is, the bookends on both sides of the three angels' messages are the gospel. Okay? Now, it begins with the gospel and it ends with the gospel. And I'm not a doctor, but I'm just guessing here that if it starts with the gospel and it ends with the gospel, then everything you see in the middle should also be highlighting the gospel. Do you follow that? Did you know the message of righteousness by faith is also found as the two bookends surrounding the Ten Commandments? So I'm going to turn to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. If you were to say, how does the Ten Commandments begin? Most people would say, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, or whatever. But that's not how it begins. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Right? So the first message, the first parenthesis on the beginning of the Ten Commandments is this idea that God is our deliverer. God is the one who delivers, okay? And we see it again on the back side. Most of us know the Ten Commandments. We've heard those before. But Exodus 20 doesn't end with the Ten Commandments. How does it end? Does anyone know? It's a law of something. Maybe you've got a little subheading in your Bible. What's the subheading that shows up right after the Ten Commandments? It's, it's the law of the altar. Okay? So, I don't know how that... Yeah, it's the law of the altar. The people are afraid of God's presence. Sorry, it's two after that because it's at the very end of it. But anyway, there's this, al- there's this law of the altar. And what God tells them is, when you build an altar, do not build it out of hewn stones. What is a hewn stone? Okay, so it's a stone that man has altered. Right? It's not in its natural state. Man had to do work to get it in that position. He also says, don't make steps ascending this altar, right? And the point that God is making here is, this is not about what you do. Right? Your altar should not be a reflection of your own works. Right? We come to God in humility in the fact that we aren't capable of bringing ourselves into God's presence, right? or bring ourselves into greater favor with God. So it's not our artisanship in in crafting rocks. It's not us climbing steps to get ourselves closer to Him, right? The two parenthetical statements on either side of the Ten Commandments are the gospel as well. God is our deliverer in that we can't save ourselves or elevate ourselves in God's sight. God already has elevated us through the giving of His Son in Jesus, right? So this idea of bookends happens in many places throughout Scripture, but this is one of them, okay? So the book ends of the three angels' messages. I think that's super important because as we go into our topic, um, we want to make sure that we're seeing Jesus at the heart of every message. Ellen White believed very strongly that what Jones and Wagner was sharing before the people was present truth. And it's still present truth. And for someone to say that everybody already knows the gospel and we just need to give them the meat is really ignorant because if you were to make a statement like that, you're making a rash assumption that 
Seventh-day Adventists actually have assurance of salvation, actually have peace, and are actually preaching that message as God intended. But we're still here, which implies that we've got room for improvement for one and two. Three, BN's pastoral department, okay, one of the largest television stations in our denomination, is getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have zero assurance of salvation. I said Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors. These are the parents and grandparents of the children in our school systems. Even pastors are wrestling with this. And yet we're telling people everybody already gets that. And so we make this assumption that evangelicals, when people come into our church and they're evangelicals, they already know about Jesus and Jesus' love, so we just need to skip to present truth and give them the real meat of our message. But the problem is our present truth, if that's what you want to call it, right, our testing truths don't have any power, Ellen White says, when they're detached from this theme of the cross. In fact, they find their power in relation to this theme. And we talked about this Saturday night. Ellen White was given this vision of a large temple, and uh, she was, do I go in, do I not go in, do I go in? And she goes in, and what was holding up this entire temple was a massive pillar in the middle. And tied to that pillar was a lamb all mangled and bleeding. And she says that everybody seemed to know that that lamb was suffering on their behalf. And it was a, it was a, vis- a course-setting vision for the Advent movement that what upholds the entire belief system of Adventism, the entire structure, is the cross, is a suffering Messiah, the everlasting gospel. And so if we do not see that at the heart of every teaching, we are not actually preaching present truth. We're not. So if we're just having an hour and a half presentation, drop kicking the Pope, or talking about Joe Biden and his policies, or Donald Trump and his policies, we are not actually preaching present truth. If all we do is talk about the sanctuary service and somebody's having an outer court experience because they eat chicken, we are not preaching tr- present truth. Right? I'm not saying God doesn't have a health message and intends us to move in a proper direction. My point is, if we are completely divorcing our messages and even our reforms from the cross and from Jesus, we are doing a dramatic disservice and we're doing the bidding of Satan. Because Satan does not want his people, he does not want God's people to embrace this message. Because he knows that when we receive this message, we talked about this in the Faith I Live By, page 111, that he knows that his power is broken when people receive this message. So yeah, focus on people eating wrong and dressing wrong and being carnal, tepid, coffee-drinking, movie-watching Adventists. Fine, focus on that. He's totally okay with that because people are not seeing Jesus in that. There are YouTube channels that exist right now for the purpose of seemingly trying to awaken the Advent church to their Laodicean state when all they're really doing is hate speech and gossip. People are paying tithe money to these individuals. They're not doing God's service, right? This is the object of God's affection, and yet they're throwing shade at it. So that's, that's not what God is talking about. That is not present truth. That's just not good stuff. Okay. Now, if you were to do a poll of many Adventists today, and you were to ask them, what is the first angel's message, what do you think the answer would be that you get? Someone were to ask, what's the first angel's message, what do you think people would say? Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Would you say that's pretty accurate on what people would say? You know what the problem with that is? That's not how the message begins. So, The first angel's message begins, Revelation 14 and verse 6, if you want to turn there. The first angel's message begins by saying, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. So the message doesn't begin with fear God and give glory to Him. In fact, that doesn't make any sense because the three angels' messages right, are the message of warning that God wants to give to the world to prepare them to stand in the day of God in the midst of the judgment, right? Well, imagine, because this message, is this message only being preached to Seventh-day Adventists? Who's it being preached to? The whole world. Unbelievers, believers of different, you know, persuasions alike. And imagine going up to a stranger on a street corner and saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Someone who doesn't even believe in God. What's their response going to be? baptize me right now. No. No. What are they going to say? You're crazy. 
Who's God that I should care, as Pharaoh said, right? The only reason why anybody would fear God and give glory to Him is if they first encountered the everlasting gospel. Do you understanding? Maybe, maybe that's why God begins the first angel's message with the everlasting gospel and not fear God and give glory to Him. Are you understanding? We'll get into the everlasting gospel here in a moment, but this is super important. So when we say that that's the first angel's message, we're missing two, um, I would say, even more important components to the first angel's message. And I love talking about the judgment, by the way. But the first angel's message begins with the everlasting gospel, and the logical call to action or the appeal at the end of that sermon is to fear God and give glory to Him. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When somebody encounters the goodness of God and the true character of God and the beauty of the gospel, that would lead them in response to His goodness to fear God and to want to live a life that would give honor to Him. And we'll address the fear of God in our second uh, block together. But are you following so far as far as what this process is, is meant to look like? It's just, it's right there. It's super clear, okay? Let alone the fact that we completely missed the Sabbath in the first angel's message. We'll deal with that maybe in our third session. We'll see how far we get, okay? So we completely miss it. So I want to start with the story. I was teaching at the Arise program in 2012 on Christian service, a class we had a couple weeks ago. And Ty Gibson was going to be preaching on the gospel in the afternoon. And if anybody knows anything about Ty Gibson, um, he loves him some gospel and does a great job of painting a healthy picture of the character of God and of Jesus. And so Ty begins his, I was like, I want to hear this. So I come in the afternoon because uh, I teach in the morning. And Ty begins his class on the gospel with a story that I will never forget. So he's talking to the young people, and he tells them a story of his conversion, after his conversion. And I forget how it worked. I don't remember if he was selling literature, if he was doing like literature evangelism, or if he was just doing door-to-door and handing out books. Um, I forget which. I think it was the latter. But he gets to this door. A guy opens the door, and he says, hey, what's going on? He says, hey. I've got this book for you, and it talks about the fact that Jesus died for you. And the guy says, and? What do you mean, and? Jesus died for you, man. The guy says, come inside. No, no, he says, so what? So what? Come inside. So Ty comes in the guy's house. The guy says, sit down. So let me tell you a story. And he starts to tell the story about his guru. So this man was an Eastern religionist of some sort. And he's telling the story about his guru and what a blessing he had been to him, the things he had taught him. But the, the people in this guy's vision, the people in this guy's village, I don't remember if it was in Pakistan or somewhere else or in India, but the, the guy was just, um, his religious views were not agreed, they did not agree with the views of the community at large, right? The religious community at large. And they didn't like him. And they had had enough of what this guy was teaching and they take this guy out into the woods they tie him to a tree, they remove his clothing, and then they began to systematically torture this guy in excruciating ways. They basically were taking like hot wood tongs and removing part of his flesh. Like it was grotesque and awful what they were doing to this man, no matter what he believes. This is absurd. And the guy is weeping as he's telling this story to Ty Gibson, who's a baby Christian at this stage. And the guy says, what my guru went through is way worse than what your Jesus went through. So why should I put my faith in him? Ty's thinking to himself, like, they didn't tell me that one in the Bible studies. Like, And the only thing Ty can muster in response to this is, so do you still want the book? <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. And he asked the Arise students, if all that we believe about Jesus is that he came and died a horrible physical death for the benefit of other people and for the things that he believed, what makes his death any more meritorious than the death of other martyrs for the benefit of humanity? Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or others, let alone the fact other people who were crucified. Jesus only lasted a few hours. Most people were crucified for a day, two days, three days. And we're not downplaying the death of Jesus. Don't get up and leave. This isn't heresy. But it's a very important question because if you were to ask most people, what is the gospel? It's that Jesus died for you. But is that really the whole picture? That's the question we have to wrestle with. And that's how Ty started his class. 
was, is, is this really the whole picture of, of what it is that we as Adventists believe in what is so powerful and can change the world? Are you understanding that? Because as you speak with people in the world, they're going to have questions like this. Why is Jesus any more significant than somebody else? And is it just the level of physical pain that he went through? Because that's what Mel Gibson thinks, right? If you watch The Passion of the Christ and see a guy beat to death for an hour and a half or two hours, like, it's, it's grotesque, right? It stirs you emotionally to see it. I watched it. It wrecked me. But is that the whole picture? Just the level of physical pain that Jesus went through? Or is there more that we need to be examining that can actually be the ticket to why the gospel is so significant and why the death of Jesus is so significant? Are you understanding? And so the, Jesus says something. As we're looking into what the gospel is, we're, we're trying to highlight the everlasting gospel specifically. Jesus makes an interesting statement in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. He says, And this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay? This is the way that Jesus communicates it. Now, he uses kind of specific language. This gospel, the gospel that I'm talking about, will be preached in all the world as a witness, and then the end will come. Now, when I read that verse, it's Matthew 24, 14. When I read that verse, I kind of get this feel that it's a if A, then B statement. Do you guys kind of get that from that verse? That if A happens, then B is going to happen. So what's, what's A again? The preaching of this gospel, a very specific gospel. And then what's the then B? When this is preached, then what happens? Jesus comes. Okay. Well, that leads to a very logical question, doesn't it? Where's Jesus? If Jesus says, when this gospel is preached and all the world is a witness, then the end will come, it, it begs the question, where is Jesus? Jesus has not come back yet, which implies to me, again, I'm not a doctor, but this implies to me that something is missing in the, this gospel that we are bringing before the world, or else Jesus would have come by now. Can you follow that logic? Something about the, this gospel clearly has not made its way to the entire world and had the impact that Jesus wished that it would. And so it begs the question, what is the this gospel that Jesus was talking about? Well, we'll see here. In Revelation chapter 14, we're told that the everlasting gospel will go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So there's a connection there, isn't there? Between the this gospel that Jesus said that he was preaching and the everlasting gospel that you and I are called to preach in the first angel's message. By the way, the three angels' messages are called as a precursor to what grand, glorious event? The second coming, right? So there's parallels between Matthew 24 and verse 14 and Revelation 14, and they have something to do with the this gospel that Jesus himself was preaching. Ella White makes this statement, Manuscript 32, 1896. The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel. And then she makes a very interesting qualifying statement. The same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So she's now broadening the tent stakes. She's saying that the gospel that was preached in the Garden of Eden and the gospel that Jesus preached, and the everlasting gospel of Revelation chapter 14 are all telling the same story. Well, what is that story? Well, in Eden, we were told that the heel of the Messiah would be bruised. She's going to have a child, and this child will crush the head of the serpent, but he will be wounded in the process. He will suffer in that process. It's one of the things that we're told. We also see in the Garden of Eden that when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, they began to experience shame and nakedness. They tried to cover themselves with their own deeds, those fig leaves of piety, if you will. Did that work? No. So what had to happen? Something innocent had to die to cover them of their shame and nakedness. Something suffered and died to clothe them and cover them of their shame and nakedness. 
What do we see in the sanctuary service in the Old Testament? A lamb is slain. What do we see from the prophets? We're told that the Messiah is going to suffer. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Isaiah 52, the last portion of it, and so forth. We're told that the Messiah will suffer. What did Jesus himself say when he came to this earth? I'm going to suffer. Did the disciples like that message? Absolutely not. Hated it with all their guts. Rejected it wholeheartedly. That's ridiculous, Jesus. How on earth are you going to take the throne back from the Romans by just like suffering for people? That don't make no sense. So they don't want to accept or embrace this idea of a suffering Messiah. Then Jesus, after he's resurrected and is on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples at the end of the book of Luke, they're grieving. And he says, why are you so sad? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what just happened? We thought that this was the Messiah, but he's dead. They beat him. They crucified him. He's dead. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement to them. He says, ought not the Christ to have suffered? Didn't the Bible say that the Messiah was going to have to suffer? Now, what do you think the apostles are preaching in the book of Acts? You got to guess? Yeah, the Messiah suffered. And then we get to the book of Revelation, and we're told about a lamb who's slain from the foundation of the world. So the everlasting gospel that needs to go to the world is going to have to main, or it's going to have to have these elements in it. It's going to have to communicate a suffering Messiah before the world. So in short, Jesus will suffer. This message has to go before the world. And we're not just talking about a bloodbath either. Though Jesus' sufferings were intensely physical, that is absolutely true. And there is no denying that. And we'll get to that. But was it only that is the question. And so what I'd like to do now is walk through Jesus' story as laid out in Scripture. You won't get excruciating details as far as uh, every single thing that he went through, but here's some that I think are super important because we're living in a world today where people are alone, people are confused, people feel betrayed and abandoned, and they really struggle to find anyone who would really understand what they're going through. Is that true? People are longing for community. They long to be understood. They wish that somebody knew what it's like to walk in their shoes. Well, what if we had a message that could do that? And what if God preordained from the foundation of the world for the last message of mercy that would go to the world to contain these very elements that could meet people in the very place where they're longing to be met, to minister to people in the very places where they long to be ministered to? What if we could offer that to them? Well, here's Jesus' story. Some of this may be familiar to you after Paul's class. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. Now, no sin was involved in this equation, but let me ask this question. As a first century Jew, do you think there was any shame that Jesus' family felt because of the way in which he was brought into this world? What do you think? Yes or no? Absolutely. Right? My mom was mad pregnant with me at her wedding. With my dad, right? It looked like somebody smuggled a watermelon under her wedding dress. And in Southern Baptist circles, do you think that's approved of? No. And am I saying that it's something that we should do? Absolutely not. It is not God's plan for your life. It is not God's will for your life to engage in these relations outside of marriage. That's a gimme. But the point is the shame that my family felt, my mom and my dad felt as a result of this. Do you think Jesus can relate to that in maybe a small form or fashion? Absolutely. Imagine being Mary. We don't talk about her much, but imagine being Mary that she just goes to visit her cousin and girl comes back pregnant. She's engaged to a good guy and your girlfriend comes back from a family trip pregnant. How would you feel about that, fellas? Holy Spirit, huh? What's his name? This is difficult for her. She's done nothing wrong, and yet she's having to feel this shame and this isolation. Even Joseph, a good dude, is going to get rid of her quietly. He's not going to make a big show and have her stoned to death because she committed adultery. He's just going to put her away quietly. We don't even think about what it means to put her away quietly. That's what's being said. She should have died. 
But Joseph, being a nobleman, isn't going to do that. He's just going to do his own thing. Thankfully, an angel speaks to him. They don't have to do that. But this even shows up later in the ministry of Jesus. It's in John chapter 6 or John chapter 7. Jesus is going back and forth with the Pharisees and talking about, if you're really Abraham's children, you would treat me far better and more like Abraham would. And like, oh, what are you saying? Like, you know, this isn't, you know, whatever, like craziness. And so they're going back and forth and they say, we were not born of fornication, is what they tell Jesus. We know who our father is. They're directly bringing before Jesus the ambiguous father figure of his life. They're rubbing his nose in it publicly. Right? They held this against him. Jesus went through this to be able to understand the shame that my family went through and others may go through. And it's not because he's endorsing sin. That's not what we're saying. The point is he's acquainted with the shame that could be felt. How many people in this room are the child of a pastor, an elder, or a teacher, or a deacon in a local church setting? Right? Maybe a teacher in a school setting. You guys know anything about pressure? Right? If I show up to church in the wrong clothes, people are going to judge mom and dad. They don't know how to raise their kids. Doesn't the Bible say your kids need to be in order or you shouldn't be an elder? Right? This stuff can happen. And I've had to pastor, I've had to pastor, I've had to counsel famous ministers' kids. And the weight that these kids bear and what they go through is no joke. It's difficult. Right? You basically are living your Christian experience, especially as a dependent young adult, not independent, as a dependent young adult, you basically had to live your life according to the expectations of the people around you. You can never really feel free to be who you are. You have to be who everybody expects you to be. It's difficult, isn't it? it kind of makes you wrestle with your own identity because am I me or am I his son? Or am I his daughter? Nobody likes that. I was just somewhere this week, uh, last weekend in the desert. There's a girl who's a musician. Her name's Shana Ash. She's got a sister, two sisters, maybe even more, but I know she's got at least two sisters. And one of them, Nyla, uh, she kept introducing herself as Shayna's sister. But like, you have an identity that isn't just based upon the fact that people like your siblings. You deserve to be liked. You deserve to be loved, right? Your identity shouldn't just be tied to the fact that I'm a deacon's kid or a pastor's kid or an elder's kid or a minister's kid or a teacher or a principal's kid. Do you understand that? Hey, so there's a lot of pressure you guys have had to deal with in life, isn't there? Especially in your upbringing. Yeah, imagine being Jesus. You're the son of God. And if you stumble in word, thought, or deed at any time in your experience, you will never see the Father again. You will never see the light of day again. And the universe itself may implode as a result of this. You think Jesus knows anything about that pressure? Yeah, he went through this for you. Jesus bore that weight of otherworldly pressure to be able to give you the strength to bear the weight of the pressure that you've had to deal with from your own situation. And when you need to get into ministry, you're going to feel it. Right? Because now you're viewed as that person who's got it all together, and you're going to feel that weight. If you haven't felt it in those contexts, you will feel it when you're in ministry later. And we need somebody who's borne that cross ahead of us to give us the ability to carry that weight because it will crush us by ourselves. And Jesus went through this just for you, just for us. We're told in Isaiah chapter 52 that Jesus was literally beaten beyond the point of recognition. You cannot physically recognize who this man is when they're done with him. Why did he do that? Because my mom was beaten beyond the point of recognition. And Jesus is able to bring comfort and healing and peace to her in ways that nobody else can because he's acquainted with her grief. He's acquainted with her hardship. Maybe you've been beaten beyond the point of recognition. Jesus understands that. And he went through that for you and for me and for all of us so that we would know that there's a Savior who understands. Are there people who need that message today? You better believe it. In Isaiah chapter 53, there's nothing about Jesus that would draw us to him. He certainly could have been tempted to not feel enough. You ever been there? Feel like you don't bring enough to the table? Wish I looked like so-and-so. Wish I had the personality of so-and-so. I wish I had gifts like so-and-so and tempted to feel that maybe you're not enough. Jesus was tempted, we're told in this way. He didn't sin, but he was tempted to believe these lies. He was despised and rejected by men. You ever dealt with rejection? It's painful, isn't it? 
It's excruciating. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. He was acquainted with grief. I've got two friends right now who are deeply grieving. Both of them, their spouses got COVID at ASI, and both of them, their spouses just passed away. And they weren't old. One was 49, the other is early 50s, healthy people, deeply involved in ministry. They're not here anymore. And my two friends are grieving the loss of their spouse and a parent to their children. One of them, his daughter just got married yesterday and mom wasn't there. This is difficult. Jesus understands what grief is like, what loss is like. He went through this for us. People hid their faces from him. You ever had that? Where people would just kind of look the other way and kind of ignore you as if you don't matter? Jesus went through this. He was despised and no one esteemed him. And he was tempted to feel alone in his grief. You ever been there? What you're going through is so painful and so difficult. And you feel that there is no one who understands. There is no one who cares. There is no one who's checking in or doing anything along those lines. Yeah, Jesus knows what that feels like. And again, he did this for you. He went through this for you. Jesus understands. He was overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. You ever been there? He felt stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You ever felt like every flaming dart from heaven is coming in your direction? He was wounded, bruised, and chastised, and received many stripes again, suffered intense bouts of physical violence. And... He was oppressed and abused and was mistreated. He was falsely accused. You ever been accused for something that you didn't do and no one would listen to you? Now, I don't just mean like, you know, your sister didn't take out the trash, but you got nailed for it. I mean serious stuff, heavy stuff, and no one would listen to you. No one would listen to you. And maybe there are still some people who view you as that type of person who's capable of doing that type of thing. And you feel that. You feel their stares. You feel their rejection. You feel their judgment. You ever been there? Jesus has. Was falsely accused for things that he never did. And you know, in those moments, we can be strongly tempted to have feelings of resentment towards those who are judging us and towards the person who really did those things. Now, Jesus is not harboring resentment, thank God. And Jesus overcame that temptation for you and for me so that we don't fall prey to it. He died childless, was never married, again was found guilty for things he never did, and he died for things that he was totally innocent of. Not just slap on the wrist, something on his record. He never, like he died. His life was taken from him for things that he never did. We get to Psalm 22. He was tempted to believe that he was forsaken of God. We'll talk about Psalm 22 at the end of our Three Angels Messages class. You ever been there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you when I need you? He was tempted to believe that God wasn't helping him or hearing him. You ever been there? We're also told that he remembered that other people received help when they prayed, but he didn't feel like his own prayers were being heard or responded to. For some of us, testimony services are excruciating. Everybody's got testimonies. God answers their prayer. God answers their prayer. But when I pray, I get cricket sounds. When I pray, my prayers hit the ceiling and laugh at me on their way down. It's difficult to hear people rejoicing in the goodness of God when you're feeling like you're enduring the deafening silence of God. Jesus has been there. He was despised and ridiculed. You ever been there? People mocked him for being a child of God. Maybe you've got family members or friends. You're in a revival experience right now. You're giving your life to Jesus. You're wanting to follow him. And there are people who not only don't understand that, but give you a hard time for it. You ever been there? I've worked in academy settings where this craziness happens. There was a kid, Riley, decided to get serious about Jesus, was super convicted, actually brought in a hired gun, some present truth preacher that mowed down the whole group and everyone's convicted and then they're back to normal a couple weeks later. It's like caffeine. You know, you get really, get this massive high, then you crash because there was no gospel to see you through. Anyway, Riley, it worked for him and uh, God's meeting us in our feeble efforts and Riley's super convicted 
and he makes a decision, I want to make a change. And the kind of clique at this school, the boys dean called them the white boys. There's a group of like four white boys that were always getting in trouble doing something. And eventually the head boys dean was just like, I'm, I, I told the white boys, I'm done. Like I've gotten to bat for these guys so many times. So Riley gets serious. He commits his life to Jesus and his friends say, that will last. You ever been there? It won't last. You were just doing what we did yesterday. And now you're saying you don't do that stuff anymore? trying to make positive changes in your life, and people give you a hard time for it. People mock Jesus for being a child of God, if you're the Son of God. He felt totally exhausted and empty, and he had no strength left. You ever been there? How much longer is this going to go on? I mean, really. Seriously. I got nothing left to give. Is there, a, is there like a, you know, an SOS? Is there like a way I can just throw in the towel and quit? Because this is, this is just too much. This is unreasonable. I can't take this anymore. Jesus was tempted with that. He was stripped of his clothing and cried out to God for help. We don't know the whole story of what Jesus went through. We don't want to read things into his story that aren't there, but I will say this. Jesus went through what many people have had to go through in principle. was stripped of his clothing and cried out to God for help. And if that's your story, you have a Savior who in principle understands. The good news is he came to understand that God was listening and hadn't abandoned him. And he was filled with praise. And that can be your story too. Amen? You think the world needs to hear this stuff? Maybe, just maybe. This is why God said that this is the way it needs to happen. In Matthew chapter 2, I'm not going to get political this morning, but I hope you're not going to get political. Jesus was a refugee and had to flee his homeland due to violence and political unrest. This is a real thing right now. We're going to go minister to refugees next month. Actually, a little more than next month, in early December. This is a big need. Jesus went through this just for them, to be able to minister to them. He understands their plight. There was a death decree. He had to flee to Egypt just to save his own life. Matthew chapter 4, again, he's tempted to doubt his identity as a child of God. If you're the Son of God, do something about it. He was tempted to provide for his own needs instead of trusting God to provide for him. Who hasn't been there, right? God isn't showing up on your timeline, so you have your own Hagar solution. You ever been there? You choose to keep God's promise to you for God because God isn't toeing the line. Jesus was tempted in that way, though he didn't give in. He was tempted to comfort himself with food when stressed. Watch out now. Shots fired, right? You ever wrestle with stress eating? Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted. Because the devil doesn't show up to him on day one of his fast. Oh, I can handle this. He shows up on 40 days into his fast. When he's on the verge of death and every nerve and sinew of his body is longing for food. Longing for comfort. Matthew chapter 4, again, he was tempted to prove his worth in pride. You ever have somebody get in your face and tell you what you aren't? And your, your temptation is to clench your fist and lash back out at them. I'll show you who's worth something. Fellows, somebody get you on the basketball court. If you're really a man, do something about it. You ever somebody get in your face? Jesus was tempted. Thankfully, didn't give in. He was tempted to physically harm himself. Is that relevant today? Throw yourself off the temple, Jesus. Go for it. Self-harm, cutting, burning, attempted suicide. Jesus was tempted to give up his faith in God to receive everything that this world has to offer. Who hasn't been tempted with this? Offering you the whole world in a platter, right? A defiled world, though. Matthew chapter 14, a close relative and friend of his is brutally murdered. You ever lost somebody unjustly? Medical malpractice, neglect, poor treatment in a nursing home facility. I just heard a story of somebody recently that was mistreated um, and they treated him for the wrong thing and ended up dying. Drunk drivers, reckless drivers, someone falls asleep behind the wheel and someone you love is no longer here. Seems so unfair. Seems so unjust. Does Jesus know anything about that? John the Baptist was brutally murdered, unjustly lost his life. Mark chapter 3, his own family thought he was out of his mind. You ever been there? I have. When I accepted this message, a house was foreclosed, 
a car was repossessed, I was homeless, I'm eating different food than I used to eat, right? My relationship with my family has never been the same because of this. It's a difficult process. My own family thinks I'm crazy. In fact, I had my grandmother tell me, just go to college and make something of your life. This is just a couple years ago. I've committed my life to ministry, traveling the country, investing in people, pointing them to Jesus. And she has the audacity to tell me to go to college and make something of my life, to do something meaningful with my life. It's difficult, isn't it? Jesus understands that. I will say this. She surprised me. When I talked to her the other day, she said that one of my family members, and I don't know who it was, um, shared with her one of my sermons, I don't know, on their phone or whatever. And she said, you know, I, um, so she couldn't even remember who it was, that if it was my cousin or if it was my uncle's wife because my aunt died of cancer, which is my grandma's daughter. Um, he's not like, she's not even married to this lady, but they're just like dating because both of them are widows and widowers. They don't really know what to do. And anyway, either his girlfriend or my cousin or somebody pulled up one of my sermons on their phone. So they clearly have been listening to it, which is a huge blessing. And they had her watch a good chunk of it. And she said, like, I can see now why it is that people ask you to do this, because it seems like this is something you're comfortable at and that you do well at, and that you seem confident in what you were doing. And that's saying a lot from somebody who largely only speaks unbelief. Um, So I'm trusting that God will do something. It doesn't make it any less difficult when people say hurtful things. And man, family have ways to cut us that nobody else can, don't they? They can hurt us in ways that nobody else can. In John chapter 7, his own brothers mocked him and didn't believe in him. You ever have a family member speak unbelief into your life? I just mentioned something for me. I'll tell you a story of this. I used to teach in an academy, and there was a kid at this school. His older sister graduated from the school first. It's a boarding school like this one, so the family doesn't live there. And in this situation... Um, the older sister graduates and they want to have, the, the mom wants to have a graduation party on campus. So she talks to one of the staff members. They have the graduation party at a staff house. So some of the students' friends are, some of the girls' you know, friends are there, the family's there. And the mom stands up in front of everybody and points to her son, the younger sibling, and says, you will never accomplish what your sister just accomplished. She says this in front of everybody. The staff were horrified. They didn't know this lady was a monster like this. So this young man goes to that school a few years later. How do you think he did? He didn't do well. There were multiple times where they were tempted to kick him out because he struggled academically and otherwise. He also had another struggle, womanizing. Hmm, I wonder why that is. I wonder why he was so desperate for the love and acceptance of a female. Maybe it's because of what he's dealing with at home. And that mom is a monster. But the school made a vow, we're not going to kick this kid out, even though he deserves to be kicked out, because they were not going to give this woman the satisfaction to ruin her son's life. And they fought for this kid, and they labored for this kid. And in his senior year, he's not towing the line academically. He can't focus. He's not doing well. Staff members are tutoring him, trying to help him. He really shouldn't graduate. And his mom tells him, you're not going to graduate. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to sit in the front row and watch your classmates graduate while you don't graduate. Now, the school never would have allowed for this. But this school labored and labored for this kid, and he did graduate. Amen? They gave this kid something that they weren't going to let her take from him. To the best of my understanding, he's still struggling in life. But I'm telling you guys, family have ways to hurt us that nobody else can. And Jesus understands that. His own brothers didn't believe in him. If you're really the Messiah, go show yourself. Prove it to people. What are you doing hanging out here? This is a feast. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus wrestled with accepting the will of God and being willing to go through with the suffering that it would cost him. You ever been there? The will of God is leading you in a direction that you really don't want to do? You're going to suffer as a result? Maybe the will of God is leading you in the opposite direction of your dreams and your plans and you don't want to go there right now. Whatever it may be. Jesus went through this just for you. Was betrayed by a close friend. You ever been there? Someone who was super close to you, stabs you in the back, breaks your heart, runs you down. He was betrayed by a kiss. Maybe you've been there. I hope not. Maybe you've been betrayed by a kiss. Maybe you've been betrayed by a kiss because mom or dad had an affair. 
tore the family apart. Somebody else in the family tore the family apart over infidelity. Jesus went through this in principle just for you. Matthew 26, he was abandoned by his friends in his greatest time of need. You ever been there? The people that you're just sure will be there for you when the whole world falls apart and they're nowhere to be found. They don't know what to do when you're struggling. They're uncomfortable. And many times in our discomfort, we just go mute. I don't want to say the wrong thing, and so I just don't say anything. And when they needed me the most, I didn't even have to say anything. I could have just sat and cried with them in the ashes. It's the only thing Job's friends got right, really. They're nowhere to be found. One of his closest friends even denied that he knew him. He did not receive a fair trial. People lied to secure his conviction. He was spat upon and abused by religious leaders. Maybe you've gone through this. You've been abused by religious leaders. It could be that they ran down your family's reputation in the church. Maybe they said things about you that weren't true in the church. Maybe you've been physically or sexually abused by religious leaders. Jesus was abused by religious leaders, maligned. His reputation was trashed, and he went through this just for you. Just for you. He understands what that's like. Matthew 27, one of his closest friends commits suicide. You ever lost somebody to suicide? I lost my cousin a few years ago. There's three grandkids on my mom's side of the family. Me, my half-brother, and my cousin Josh. We're three years apart. And Josh wasn't doing well in life. His dad was kind of had a troubled childhood, was in children's homes all the time, in and out. And his dad got his life together and gave his life to Jesus. But his mom, I think, was homeless at this stage. She'd kind of lost her mind. And not that everybody who's homeless has lost their mind, but she had and was not really in a good place. And Josh really isn't interested in God at this stage. And he, the only thing that was going well for him in life was a girlfriend. And she dumps him. And he goes to the bar that night and begs her to reconsider. She says no. And Josh goes out into the parking lot and ends his life. 20-something-year-old kid. Josh is gone. We can't have him back. Jesus understands what it's like to lose someone who's close to us through suicide. He was brutally beaten, tortured, stripped, and mocked by the equivalent of law enforcement in the military. Again, I'm not getting political today, but does this stuff happen? Absolutely. And Jesus understands what that's like. He went through this just for them. Here's a big one for many of us. He was tempted to numb his pain with wine. At the root of every addiction is an attempt to escape pain that we're currently feeling. And Jesus refused that. He said no to that temptation to give you an eye power to say no when we're overwhelmed by the pain that we're going through. Amen? But he understands what it's like to be tempted. Matthew 27, he was stripped naked, exposed publicly, and shamed by those who should have been leading him for good. This is still a massive issue. Sec- I was preaching at, a, um, at an academy, I won't say where, a place that used to be known as a very spiritual place. But when I did the week of prayer there, they had a change of leadership. And there was like 60, 70 percent of the school wasn't spiritual. The kid that was the head of the student government got kicked out for sexting during the week of prayer. Four or five kids got kicked out of the school while I'm trying to do this week of prayer at this place. It was rough. It was a mess. This is a real thing. And I I have to tell you today, and I I trust that this is not going to be the case in your life, and I hope this has never happened to you, but when people say, I'm not going to show anybody, that is never true. It is never true. And those images never die, and they ruin people's lives. People commit suicide over this. People lose jobs over stuff like this. It can ruin them and wreck them, and it is not worth it, and do not do it. But if you've had to go through this, Jesus understands he was stripped naked and humiliated publicly just so that someone could understand what you're going through. Jesus understands. He was tortured alive, again was tempted to doubt his identity as a child of God, and was tempted to believe that he was abandoned by God and left to suffer alone. As he quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. And he felt totally unappreciated by those he was giving his life for. You ever been there? You're making sacrifices for people, you're wheeling and dealing for people, and there's no gratitude. Maybe you're making sacrifices for your family. You're working, doing whatever you can to keep the family afloat, and you're trying to do something that's in your best interest, and everybody's giving you a hard time because you're not focusing on them when you're trying to grow your relationship with Jesus and do what's right. 
You ever been there? People don't want to support you in the decisions that you're trying to make. You feel totally unappreciated for those that you're giving your life for. Jesus gets it. Parents go through this. Kids go through it too. Parents can really ride us and pressure us and shame us just because we're not giving them our undivided attention, but we're doing what God's asking us to do. Jesus understands. But here's why he went through all this. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, we're told that he will see the travail or the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is the amazing thing. That as Jesus is looking forward to what it is that he's going to have to suffer for you and for me, he's satisfied with it. As he looks back, or as he's going through it in the middle of it, he's satisfied because he believes that you're worth it. And as Jesus looks back upon what he just went through, he's still satisfied because Jesus understood it will require a life of suffering and death to give you what you need. Jesus could have come to this earth, walked into the temple, and let himself be offered at the altar like any other sacrifice. But he didn't choose that path. Jesus chose a path that was filled with suffering, heartbreak, betrayal, abandonment, abuse, and loneliness. Why? Because each and every one of you have lives that are filled with this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. These aren't in the slides, but turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Beginning of verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 17. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. Not that he might need to be like his brethren. He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation covering for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. Do we live in a world today where people are tempted? Do we live in a world today where people are longing to be understood and to be heard, whose wounds have no safe space to be communicated and sorted through and healed? The Bible just said that Jesus had to go through the hell that you just heard, and there's more than that. This is just a small picture of it. He had to go through this to be able to comfort you when you're hurting, when you're tempted, when you're struggling when you're abused and discouraged and alone. He had to do this so that he could comfort you. Is that a message the world needs to hear today? That there's comfort available to them for the hardship that they've had to go through and that there is someone who understands they don't have to be ashamed to come into their presence? Go to Hebrews 4, beginning of verse 14. Hebrews 4. Beginning verse 14, it says that seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, speaking of a suffering Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Now, why does he say that? Why does he tell us that we have a suffering Messiah and that we should hold fast our confession? Why do you think that is? They're suffering too. And what are we tempted to do when we suffer regarding our confession? Yeah, to let go of it, right? Our temptation when we go through these hardships, when we suffer, is to let go of our confession. It's too hard. It's too difficult. This doesn't work. I can't do this. And so we leave. And Paul says, I get that. But when you're suffering, that is not the time to let go of Jesus. That's the point that he's making. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's hope. There's someone who's gone through what we went through and who didn't check out. And he can do something for us. And what invitation does he give us after he says that? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you're suffering and when you're hurting, this is not the time to let go of Jesus. It's the time to sprint into his comforting arms. Are you understanding? Beloved, this is the message that has to go to our world. If we're just telling people that somebody died a physical death on their behalf, we're not giving them the full gospel. And we're not giving them a message that can take them from where they are in their brokenness and their difficulties and their heartbreak and their trials. They're not going to come boldly into the presence of Jesus when they think He doesn't know what it's like. And they're not going to come boldly to Jesus if they think that Jesus is judging them and thinks about what a loser they are and that they're not good enough. The only reason why someone would come boldly into Jesus' presence is if they felt that they would be welcomed in Jesus' presence. When you open your arms to a little child and they sprint to you with trust in their face, it's because they actually believe you're trustworthy. This message is what will show the world that Jesus is trustworthy. That no matter what their story is, no matter how dark their past may be, it doesn't matter. There's a Savior who's willing to welcome them. Are you understanding? That's just the beginning of the first angel's message. But this is what would lead people to fear God and give glory to Him and who would live a life that would honor Him in the midst of the judgment, to see a Messiah like this. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions? Questions or comments? When you were saying when it's fair to portray Jesus as He was actually crucified. I didn't hear what you are saying. Oh, I wonder if any artist would dare to portray, like to paint a picture of how Jesus was actually crucified because you know you can look at Jesus being crucified but that that doesn't even do it justice yeah and I mean in in blatant honesty his physical pain is the least of my concerns yeah I mean what's the crucifixion was bad don't get me wrong but Ella White says very clearly his physical pain was quote unquote hardly felt yeah that's the least of my concerns like being crucified naked uh Oh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, but the point is, like, that, it's it's so much worse than that. Like, what Jesus went through, and we'll get to that in the faith of Jesus. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, and it's awful. It's absolutely awful what Jesus went through. I'm not denying that, but what killed Jesus was not that cross. Not even close. Yes. Guys, Jesus gets it, and you're here for a reason. I know what goes through people's minds in this program because we've done this before. There are people right now who think they don't even deserve to be here, and they should just leave because they're not good enough. They're not cut out for this. It's too difficult. It's too hard. I can't afford it. Things are going crazy right now at home. I get it, guys, and so does Jesus. But the point is, He didn't call you here without thinking about that. He called you here knowing what you would go through, knowing what you would need to hear, and knowing that He would supply your need when the need came. Yeah? It happens every year. And the order of our classes isn't exactly the same every year. Sometimes things change for scheduling, and it never ceases to amaze me. People will say, I needed that class on that day. I wasn't in charge of that. But the person who called you here was. And if you will lean into the calling that you've been given, you don't have to check out. You don't have to quit. You don't have to leave, right? You don't have to call in sick. Like literally, God has what you need in the place where he called you. But when you remove yourself from the places where God has called you, he can't give you what he prepared to give you when you needed it most. Does this make sense? Trust the process. He's brought you to a place to heal you, to grow you, and to bless you. But when you get overwhelmed by what you're going through, sprint into the comforting arms of Jesus. Come boldly to His throne. Don't let go of your confession. Don't take the day off. Lean into the blessings He's given you here. I promise you, it it never fails. 
There's days people don't want to go on outreach, and they go anyway, and they get blessed beyond their imaginations. People don't want to go to class. They show up to class reluctantly, and God speaks directly into that space. I've seen it. This is not my school. I have no idea what I'm doing. Daryl Marina have no idea what they're doing. This is bigger than us. And we show up each day trusting that God is going to provide what's needed, and He does it. This is bigger than us. You're going to lose blessings when you leave. You will. So lean into it. There's something for you here today. And tomorrow and this afternoon, they're here. They're there for us. And I get it. It's a slog. Facing ourselves is hard. It's difficult. You will leave this place better, healthier people. I promise you that if you lean into the blessings that God wants to give you. But when we, when, we, when we dip out, we miss those, right? And so take an opportunity just to think through that because there, there's precious gifts He has for us. I know it. I've seen it. God gave me a gift today just in sharing with you. And God gives me gifts in seeing that what He puts on my heart speaks into your heart when you need it the most because I don't know these things but he does. And that means that we're enjoying these blessings together. Yeah? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for providing for us, for giving a lamb um, when it was needed most. I don't know all the stories or what's going on in this room, but you do. And I pray that you would minister to all of us, that you would be that sympathetic high priest as we come to see that you understand what it's like to be discouraged and tempted and hurt. And uh, the devil certainly is lashing out at many of us in this room because we're making a good decision, because we're in the very place where we should be. Lord, don't let him win. Don't let him discourage us. Don't let him pull us off from the very place where you long to bless us. And Lord, you'd, you've said that this is a message that Satan does not want his, your people to hear because his power over us will be broken if we hear it. Well, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would have hearts to receive. Thank you for being who you are and for the blessings you're still to give. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.